Hey listeners, the podcast has taken the last two weeks off to listen, learn, create space, and educate ourselves on white privilege, systemic racism, police brutality, and the countless other critical subjects plaguing the black community. Black lives matter. Black trans lives matter. All black lives matter. The Breakdown Podcast stands in solidarity with the black community and is working harder than ever to bring you interviews with influential black and people of color in our industry. The podcast was created to give you, the listeners, an up-to-date, truthful representation of the business from the inside out. It would be disingenuous and against the mission of The Breakdown to not share and report on what is happening on a daily basis to our black friends and coworkers. In honor of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the countless other beautiful black lives that have been lost due to police brutality, The Breakdown Podcast has made donations to the Broadway Advocacy Coalition, the Next Wave Initiative, and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. While donations are incredibly helpful at this time, and I encourage you all to donate, it's my belief that it is only through listening, learning, voting, and meaningful conversation that real change can begin to take place. This week, I had a conversation with friend and Broadway actor Jonathan Burke about his experience in the Broadway community. This is without a doubt the most important conversation I've had on the podcast because of how much I've learned, and it is my great honor to share it with you all today. So here we go. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Broadway actor Jonathan Burke. Jonathan's Broadway credits include The Inheritance, literally my favorite play, Choir Boy, and Tuck Everlasting. Off-Broadway, he's been seen in Tony Stone at Roundabout, Joan of Arc Into the Fire at the Public Theater, and Langston in Harlem with Urban Stages. National touring credits include Mary Poppins, A Christmas Story, Joseph, and Cats. Regionally, Jonathan has been seen literally everywhere at Berkeley Rep, Goodspeed, Syracuse Stage, The Muni, The Studio Theater, The Hangar Theater, Merry-Go-Round Playhouse, The Broad Stage, and Virginia Stage Company. On television, Jonathan appeared on NBC's New Amsterdam. Listeners, not only is Jonathan insanely talented, but he's an incredible person as well. We talked about so many difficult and necessary subjects, including the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's inspired Black members of the Broadway community to come forward with their stories of racism in the workplace. Jonathan shares a story with me he's only told his close friends, and my jaw was on the floor. It's moments like that that help me understand my white privilege, and I'm grateful to Jonathan for sharing. We talked about Jonathan's award-winning portrayal of Bert and Mary Poppins at Syracuse Stage, and how the casting of Bert as a black man was groundbreaking, even though it shouldn't be and should just be expected by now. But he talks about how booking that role gave him the confidence and hope that when you're right for a role, no matter what race a role is traditionally cast as, you can show that creative team that that role is yours. He says it's that mindset that set him up for success when auditioning for The Inheritance on Broadway earlier this year. And maybe most importantly, we talk about what a white ally in the theater actually looks like. Things I can do to support and help my black friends and coworkers both as an actor and a director. This conversation was critical for sparking change, not just in the theater community, but in the world. For white listeners, I encourage you to have conversations with your black and POC friends and coworkers. To be completely honest, I was so nervous to have this conversation, but I'm so happy I did, and I will be sharing similar conversations as long as this podcast is in existence. So enough about me. Here's my conversation with the insanely talented Jonathan Burke. Jonathan and I met in like 2016. Yeah. It was like, right? It was like somewhere around there. Definitely 2016, um, December or something like that, November or October or something. Yeah, in the fall. Uh, At Syracuse Stage, I was in a show, I was doing Great Expectations, why Jonathan was rehearsing Mary Poppins. Which yes. we, which was super cool, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit later. But Jonathan, thank you so much for doing this. I so appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I totally am too. And I was just saying to you, it was important for me to participate in the conversation, and happy that we can record it and bring it to other people. And it's important to me to give an accurate view of what our business looks like in 2020. And, you know, to be completely honest, I 
had not a lot of understanding of what the business looked like for people of color, for black people. I I absolutely just didn't didn't know because of the color of my skin and privilege. And um, I found the theater as such a safe, accepting place being gay. And so I just always thought that it was that way for everyone. And that's why I think it's just been so heartbreaking to kind of, you know, find out that that's not the case for everyone. And I have been listening and taking, you know, just trying to understand and wrap my head around, you know, exactly what that is. And thank you for being here and helping me do that and helping me and everyone listening to to understand that no matter what the color of their skin. Again, like you don't need to sit here and talk to me about this, but I'm grateful that you are. Oh, I think I do need to sit here and talk to you about this, actually, because I think everyone needs to understand this and everyone needs to learn and grow from this. So I think it is necessary. And so I'm glad to do it. You know, this is not the first time the Black Lives Matter protests have been front page news, you know, really important stuff in in what's happening in our culture. And, you know, living in New York, we're so lucky because that is a place where we get to see so much activism and so so many positive things happening, we get to look out our windows and see it, see the protests, see how much it matters to so many people. This feels a little different, this moment. I, I feel like more people are listening. I feel like it's more than just social media. I, I feel like more people are are adding it to the conversation. It just feels like very, very important, as it always has been. But to maybe more people and more people are realizing are being accountable for for their actions and and does that feel true to you and i and I wonder uh why this moment maybe feels different than than it has previously? Yeah, I think that absolutely feels true to me, and I think one of the main reasons is that we are all in this quarantine time, so we're all at home with our thoughts. We're all at home looking at social media. We're all at home looking at the news. Uh, So when something that is so important comes across your screen, you have no choice but to pay attention to it. There are no other distractions. If we were all at work right now, I don't think that any of this would be happening at the rate at which it is because history shows it hasn't before. So I think the fact that we all have this moment away from other things allows us to focus on what we should have been focusing on for years and really is galvanizing people to come together for such an important issue. Not to mention the fact that I think having the president that we currently have, people are very fed up with him in general and the whole administration. So I think there is a time for change that everyone's looking for. And this is giving people an opportunity to do that. And I think also a big difference between now and a lot of the protests or march marches from the past is it seems as though everyone is kind of coming behind it, which shows a great amount of progress in the country. I mean, all races are coming behind this. It's not just a fight that Black people are fighting because we actually need everyone to fight it too in order to make a change. So that really warms my heart when I see the protests and it's just a mix of so many different types of people. That's what we need. So I think that's the reason why it's so powerful right now. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I think even before the past few weeks, I was already sitting on so many, sitting with my thoughts about so many other things about life and how do we change? How do we come out different on the other side of quarantine. And this is just very big, important piece of the puzzle that is rocking me and in, in, in so many ways. And I know so many others. I'm, I'm so grateful that the protesting has really inspired the Broadway community to speak up about racial injustice. It kind of happened before in 2014. There were some important conversations that were happening, but but there seems like there are so many resources now and so many people coming forward about their stories of racism and microaggressions in, in the theater community specifically. 
And I, and I wonder, what do you hope will change in the theater community in this business specifically because of people using their voices in these conversations happening? Well, I hope that finally the theater community becomes a space of true equity for all artists and people working in the theater. Um, I hope that all voices get to be heard and all people get to be seen and stories get to be told that have not had the opportunities to be told, seen, or heard before. Because that is the landscape of the world and art should reflect life. And it really has not done that to the extent at which it should since the theater has begun. So it is about time that we make room for everyone at the table. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, seeing a Broadway show or seeing a show, you know, I like to see a world that looks like the world that you walk out of the street and see. You know, people on stage that just look like the world, that have different not only different colors, but body sizes and, and, and everything. And it seems like it hasn't been that way in the past. And, and it's, it gets me excited for, for the stories that I think will be told and, and, and how they will be told and the people that they will be told by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this moment, it's very powerful. The amount of theater makers that have been coming together, speaking toward this, and I just really hope that the action actually comes with the words. Because you can say a lot of things, but when it comes down to it, are you going to put your money where your mouth is and actually institute change? Because if you don't, then it was all just really for show. So we've got to see in the coming months, you know, if that happens. And I really, really, really hope so. Yeah. You know, I was one of the most incredible things that was helpful for me was the Broadway Advocacy Coalition's three-day forum. I mean, that was huge. I was so happy to listen. And I think it was Amber Iman that said in day two that like really struck me. She said, the casting is not the problem. She she said, the problem is from it coming from the top. She said, if you have black and people of color that are producing and that are directing and that are in the casting room, we don't, that are, you know, casting the shows, we don't have to worry about the casting of the show because that will filter out. So, you know, she said she always gets asked about diversity and casting. And and she said, it's not about that. It's about putting people at the top. And that, that seemed huge to me. And it seems like absolutely like then we won't even have to worry about the casting aspect of it. It just, it just will filter out, you know, the way it's supposed to. Yeah. I've been saying that for years, it's mm-hmm. even beyond even the producers, the theater owners, first and foremost, those are the people that are then allowing the producers to use the space. So if those people are representing all cultures then there is no way that the material that comes through those theaters will not then do the same. So that's where it has to start. It has to, or else we'll get back in the same place that we've been. I didn't even think about that, that it's, that totally, I mean, the people at the top of the pyramid are the theater, the theater owners. And there's been some just also unfortunate news about their political contributions for many theater for many of the bigger theater owners. And that's just like a whole other can of worms. That's yeah. just really disappointing and makes a lot of sense about the the stories that are coming to the stage in a commercial way. But I think what's cool is that you have been a part of some really special, very cool stories that have happened in our commercial theater that does give me hope for the kind of stories that I think will take place. I, I want to talk about that in a little bit because I want to back up I just wonder if you could talk, you know, just a little bit about your upbringing, also specifically maybe about uh, race in regards to your upbringing. Did you grow up with a lot of people that looked like you and and how and, and kind of why you found the theater? 
Yeah, um, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a largely black city. Um, so I grew up around tons of people that look like me. I went to elementary schools that and middle schools that were predominantly black. Um, and within that middle school is where I actually really found my love of theater. There was this amazing teacher who uh, really saw in me something special. And I started doing all the musicals at the school and she really kind of nourished my talents there. And she was, she was the leader of a choir that was outside of the school that she asked me to be a part of. So I really started developing my artistic abilities because of her. And she had attended a high school called the Baltimore School for the Arts that Tupac Shakur, Jada Pinkett Smith, um, Christian Siriano, a lot of people, you know, have attended. It's a really wonderful, wonderful program. And so she suggested that I audition. So I ended up going there. And in that school is when I really saw a more diverse experience. Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful amalgamation of just young artists, all different races, different economic backgrounds. I mean, it, it was kids that just loved the arts. So I was able to really learn how to navigate lots of different types of people throughout that time. Um, and it was really, really, really great. And, and that was also a part of a theater program outside of school called the Arena Players Theater, which was a community theater. One of the oldest, I believe, could be the oldest, one of the oldest African-American community theaters in the country. And so they had a after-school program for young people. So I had a lot of role models, actually, thankfully, which is not normal, <laughs> um, of Black artists growing up that were right actually in front of me, not just on a screen, which is there's a lack of that as well. So I luckily had people right there that were really guiding me and I'm so thankful to them. So yeah, that was kind of my youth. But then, you know, when I, when I went, I decided to go to college for musical theater and I went to Ithaca College, which is right near Syracuse. Yes. Um, and it was a big culture shock then because Ithaca is largely white town. I mean, and, and the college itself is predominantly white students. So I was very much a minority. I mean, in my class, I was the only black musical theater major in my class. There was one Latinx female and me out of however many student, uh, musical theater students there were, I think 14 or something like that. And that was really different. But I was open to that experience because I knew that that would be what the world was like. Yeah. The real industry of theater, predominantly white industry. And so I said, well, this is a pretty close approximation to what it's going to be when I'm out there. And that came along with, I mean, challenges, but there were also really beautiful people in that school, in that program. So it was a good experience overall, but it was definitely a lot learning experience. Did you, knowing, like, I guess when you go to a school like that, did you know going into it that I'm probably not going to be able to play a lot of roles written for Black men? Or did, was that something that you were conscious of? Or how was Ithaca with creating those experiences for you? Is that something that's important, I guess? Is it, and how important is it? I, I don't know. You really. know, I was very hopeful that I would have opportunities to learn about theater makers that were Black, that, you know, really affected this industry. And I will say, although I did learn about that to an extent, I do think that had we had professors that 
looked like me, I would have had a much greater experience and breadth of knowledge because there just simply wasn't that breadth of knowledge with with the professors. And I had to do a lot of research on my own, ultimately, to discover performers and writers outside of the ones that everyone has heard about, such as The Wiz or Dreamgirls, that every person knows. That's about like two shows that I would say most people know about that have all black casts. There are so many others that just get no recognition. So I took it upon myself really to go into the library and do like studies and look online and find material for myself to bring to classes and things like that so that I could show more representation in that way. They were good in terms of casting though for me because they did look for some opportunities that actually had roles for black males in them so i played some of those like flick and violet and horse and the full monty so i think they actually realized that they did have a requirement to give me those opportunities because it's just so important that's great that you did have that you did have that because I know that wasn't the case for so many of my friends at, at Syracuse, but it, I mean, it is important. You know, I guess the, the you know, in life, this, I'm just like, uh, this is occurring to me. Like I can't relate to obviously be, be, being a, a black actor in this business, but what I equate is like my difference of, I guess, being a gay man and like not being able to play a role written for a gay man or like talk to like another man that I love, like that I'm having a, a, a relationship with on stage. What is that for you? Like, what is that, I guess, relationship between playing a gay character and, and, and playing an actor of color? Is it as important when like you're connecting with a character or to work on material I guess that you can maybe bring your full self to that, to that material or. Yes, absolutely. I completely think that it is so important to be able to bring your full self to this type of work. And that's when often you're able to do your best work. I'm such a champion of people really living in their truth. And when you unlock who you really are, then the creative work becomes that much more powerful. So that's why something such as Choir Boy, which I did on Broadway, meant so much to me because that really was the ultimate representation of that for me, of myself fully realized on a stage through my art. And it gets no better than that. Yeah, it, I mean, it was so incredible. I absolutely loved that play. And I'm so happy that it got the stage that it did. You know, the the so many people saw it. So many people loved it. And it felt so authentic. And, and I connected so much with the story. And I know even people that are... St- straight white people connected with the story. It, it really felt universal about acceptance and love and, and all of that. This is just like a side question. Did you get that show knowing that you were always going to take over as the lead or was that something that kind of just happened after you got the job? Oh, um, actually, no. When I first got cast, I was only under the assumption that I was going to be in the ensemble and understudying the lead. However, about two weeks to a month after I got cast, they called me back on the phone (laughs) and said, well, it turns out that there's been a scheduling change and Jeremy Pope, who was playing the lead, has to leave to do another show, which was Ain't Too Proud. And due to that, if the show extends beyond the date that they have set, I will then take over in the leading role. So at that point, I did know that it was possible. It wasn't definite because it all depended on how the sales went and if they decided to extend beyond Mm -hmm. their initial closing date. Thankfully, they did decide to extend and it went really well. And I was able to take over and close out the show for the last couple of weeks 
in the leading role on Broadway. So cool. I was just like so excited when I saw that that was happening and um, just yeah, just really cool and just wondered about. True. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, okay, so I want to keep, so I want to back up again. So you graduate from Ithaca and you start in this business and I, I guess like my very direct question is like, when did you start experiencing that racism in the theater community was prevalent and, and was a, a real problem? Well, you know, it was luckily for me when I first came to New York, my first experience doing theater in New York was an all black cast of a new musical called Langston in Harlem, written by a black man, Kent Gash, and directed by a black man, Kent Gash, choreographed by a black man, Byron Easley. So it was an incredible introduction to New York theater because I was in a cast amongst people that I had looked up to for so long and they now were my colleagues and it was a dream. So that was great. But then as I began to audition for other things after that was over and meeting new people and hearing stories about other friends' experiences, I then got to see that that was an anomaly, really, that experience, and that it would be a much harder journey. (laughs) And it really came in the fact of I found myself being cast in so many different shows in which I was the only Black person in the show, which is hard. I mean, I don't think that many white people have had that experience of being the only one. When you look around a room of people and you're trying to be free and as creative and as open and as authentic and as you as you can be, you look around and there's no one else to support that or that could possibly even understand what that is, is not easy. And as much as the others around may be nice and that's lovely, it's not the same as having others that can also share in your experience and your story. So that was some really hard times and, and it makes you question what is my purpose here? Why am I here? Am I valued here? Are you just having me here because you want to have seeming diversity because you have one Black person on the stage? Because to me, that just points out to me that you really didn't seek to have true equality. You you saw that there was a lack of one type of race and you decided well let's put one and that'll do it people will be okay with that so we had someone we're not racist it's problematic so that's when i really (laughs) saw that part of the story yeah that i guess it seemed like people were concerned with checking a box rather than hearing valued input and and creating you know a world that we all walk out on the street and see yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That leads me kind of to another question, you know, which is another thing that the Broadway Advocacy Coalition was awesome was, you know, I always I always thought the word diverse was, a, you know, a good word. Like, oh, I, that was maybe I would describe something by being diverse or diverse casting, you know, is, you know, diverse cast is something you see in the breakdowns and things, but it totally struck me when I don't remember exactly who, who said it, but it doesn't matter. Cause I'm sure many people have said it. It's not about diverse. It's about equality. And that's something you just talked about. And I, and I just want to know if you can just talk about maybe the di- like what the differences between those two terms mean to you. Yeah. It's, you see these terms such as, diverse casting, colorblind casting, inclusivity, and all of those terms imply an other. Like I am allowing this other thing to be a part of the thing. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, it's not your thing. 
it's not my thing. It's our thing. The space is owned by all of us. We should all be able to occupy this space equally with the same amount of representation, of input. And that's why I think equity is what we're searching for, mm-hmm. not inclusion or diversity. Because if something is diverse, sure, like I said, okay, it's diverse because you have 10 white people, one black person, and one Asian person. So yeah, that's diverse because everyone's not exactly the same, but that is not equitable. And that's what's much more important because if you don't have that, then the voices aren't actually being heard. They're just place markers. Mm-hmm. So. Is, there a, is there a term like that you see on a breakdown? I mean, on a breakdown, would you would you like it to not say anything about race and just talk about the character or it, you know, sometimes it's all people, all races encouraged to submit. I mean, here's the thing. I think that it should not say a word about race unless the story actually has something to do with race. That is the only time in which the race needs to be mentioned or that you need to even mention the fact that all races are requested to submit or whatever that terminology is that they use. Because (laughs) that's showing that that's not always been the norm and that's the sad part. So it should be open to anyone to tell these stories because stories are so universal. So unless, again, it has to do directly with race, it should not be mentioned. And it's funny because a a story that sticks with me about an experience that I've had, and this is something I've actually really never shared with anyone other than close friends of mine, but it really affected me because I was, well, a friend of mine was a large part of a big musical that was going to Broadway and he was doing the out of town tryout and he found out that it was going to Broadway and I was so excited for him. And I said, Oh wow, maybe I could be in it with you. Maybe I'll make my Broadway debut too. And he said, yeah, but there's no black people in this show. And I said, okay, Sure, there currently are no Black people in the show, which A, was a problem, but B, there was no reason that there could not be a Black person in this show. And his argument was that, oh, Black people did not live in this part of the country during that time. And my argument was, well, also, the story is a fanciful story. None of it is, it's not a a story that's based on fact. It's not a biography. It's not about real human beings. It's, it's actual, actually about magic. It's None of it is realistic. So for you to not be able to see beyond the fact that maybe Black people didn't live with white people in this part of the country at this time, that I couldn't be a part of this storytelling was really heartbreaking for me from someone who was a friend of mine. This is a person who I was close with and they couldn't even see that I could be a part of this. And that that really blew my mind. Um, turned out that I was a part of it and I actually did get cast in it. So that was pretty, pretty funny. But then even in that, again, I was the only black male in that show. So yes, it was a huge accomplishment. I was glad to be a part of that. But at the same breath, it still felt like a consolation prize just to add one pop male, one pop female. And now we have diversity Mm -hmm. on stage. And that just really wasn't enough. And it it brought back all those, those same feelings that I had from other shows that I had done in the past in which I was the only one or one of two. Yeah. It's 2020. Like it's time for forward 
thinking and and this is like a theater community that you know has a a reputation for being so inclusive and it's just um you know really heartbreaking to hear but i'm i'm happy that uh that we're all learning about it myself included i think that that's a big part of it is hearing these stories and i'm so happy you know I, I'm sorry it felt like a consolation prize, but I just love that you got to <laughs> do that show and, and you know, tell that story. I think it's that's really cool. Jonathan, like you are uh have this incredible career and and it's been so fun to to watch it unfold and you've done some really, really cool things. I mean, especially in the last year. How if if at all, do you feel like your success in the business, does that change how you deal with or see racism, microaggressions? I know it doesn't change that these things happen, but I just wonder, you know, maybe for people listening who think, you know, once I get to a certain level or once I'm working on Broadway, which clearly is not the case because that's what we're talking about right now, but it it obviously doesn't end, but, but is there a different way that you... That you approach it, that you you listen to it, that you deal with it, you know? Yeah, um, I think that now, because of my experience and more confidence in myself and my abilities, I am able to actually address some of the issues that surround race or racism, I should say, within the theater community head on more than ignoring it in the past like I may have done when I was younger because of fear of being viewed the wrong way or not being cast again or seeming like the angry black man or being too sensitive and I didn't mean it that way you know that I'm a good person and all of that so now I think I have more confidence to just address it, even though that being said, there's still times that come up in which I just think it's not even worth mentioning, you know, at this point to this any given person because of a variable of reasons. Most of them are, though, still in a line with, oh, this is a person of power. And me saying that to them might negatively affect my experience for the rest uh, you know, of my time in the theater, which I think many white people don't have that fear. They feel as though they could say what they feel at any time and it won't negatively affect them because their opinion is respected. Whereas often ours seems to be less so. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that has ended. I mean, there's still, you know, microaggressions and things that occur. And I try my best to stand up for those when I can. Yeah, absolutely. We we met when you were having this very cool career moment that you, you made this, um, this great post you wrote on Facebook, I remember reading was like so incredible about being cast as Bert and Mary Poppins at Syracuse Stage. It was an incredible thing because the role is traditionally played by a white man. It shouldn't be an incredible thing that you were cast in the role. It should just be what, okay, next, next job. Do you know? Uh, But it was not, but I loved that it was definitely a celebration because it, it shows at least to me some change and, and some forward thinking. Yeah. Um, It gave me so much hope in my career and in this industry it was such a beautiful thing and it's sad that it had to be that long in the lifespan of the arts that something like this still has that effect, like you're saying, that that is still something to be lauded, but it is. And that was only 2016. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, you know, that that mm. happened. And, and it's still, certain casting opportunities such as that are still big wins to this day for people to be cast in a role that has never before been cast as a person of color. But it gives the younger generation something to look up to. And that's what makes me feel so good about it. It 
so many young people came up to me after that production um, or emailed me or, you know, DM'd me or whatever, saying how they were so happy for me and they really now had hope that they could play something like this one day, so. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, think about all the children of color, the black kids that came to see it, uh, that that saw, oh, my gosh, I can do that. I can play that role or or I can have any job I want to have. And for all the white kids that were seeing it that were just probably just watching it, not clocking your skin color, just clocking the great character that was seen before them. Yeah, which is that really was special. really beautiful too. I thought about that a lot too. I was like, this. some of these white kids, they have never seen this story. And now their thought of Bert is me, mm-hmm. a black man. And that's beautiful. Yeah. I want to know a little bit more about like the process of getting that part and like what the audition was like. Um, a bird. That was a bird clock. That's a bird clock. <laughs> this is not my home that I'm in, but uh, so uh, love the love the clock. You, you know, when you got that appointment from your representation, what was your thought? Was it like, oh, I'm never going to get this part, or or you know, I, I just wonder if you could speak about like from kind of the first audition to maybe like then getting the callback and then getting the role. Kind of what what your thought process was like and and what your experience was. I had done the national tour of Mary Poppins and I was in the ensemble in that. And throughout that whole time, I was happy to be where I was. And, you know, I never really saw myself as Bert. I just didn't think that anyone would ever give that opportunity. So it didn't even really cross my mind as a thing. So when my representation reached out and said they want to see me for Bird, I was initially shocked. But then quickly I thought, actually, that makes complete sense. Why could I not be Bird? Of course I could be Bird. I'm actually born to be Bird. Like that <laughs> is what I do largely. Song and dance man. Yes, this is my role. Let me go in there and make sure that they know that. And so when I went in, I just made it my own. I didn't think anything about what anyone else had done, the legendary performances, of course, that we know. Um, I just wanted to bring myself to it. But I will say, throughout that whole audition, I didn't see another person that looked like me auditioning for the part. So in my mind, I was thinking, well, I wonder if they're going to take this risk, because I know I'm killing this. So if they decide to take this risk, then it's mine. And I, and thankfully they did. And it's so sad that they call that I have to even call it a risk. But for people, they think of often think of casting someone outside of the norm as a risk because they don't know how people are going to perceive it or take it. But thankfully it, came with such positive love and they were they were amazing over there at Syracuse stage and it was a it was a great experience. Yeah. I it gives me hope. I think it gave a lot of people hope. And I think that it it will it it's experiences like that that will make it the norm. And and it's I think it's very cool that you um that that you were such a big part of that. And and like you said, you were so like incredible in the role and, and when the role is yours, then it's yours. Well, and I think having that experience for me gave me so much confidence in what I could do in the future. For instance, like the fact that I was able to play Bert. Then, what, three years later, when the Inheritance audition came around and the role that I was being seen for was originally cast in London by a white man, I then had no fear of my inability to be seen in this role because I thought, I know I can do this and I know that this is for me and it doesn't matter that the man who originated it in London is white. 
I'm going to bring myself to it. And now it's going to be a black man in this role. And that's what happened. So I think that once you have that affirmation, you then are able to continue to move forward and strive for even higher heights. But you need to be given those opportunities so that you know that it's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and honestly, even just hearing you say that is is inspiring. <laughs> I'm, you know, is inspiring to me. And I and I think that hearing hearing that as someone who is younger and entering this business is is gonna be really, really important to hear and really important to see. Cause when you see it, you're a role model. Anyone, you know, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. I mean, they have to be insanely talented like you are, but they can do it. Do you know? Oh, stop. Thank you. This is a little bit of switching switching gears, but um, I I want to know a little bit about code switching. I, I just it was never something that I I ever knew the terminology before. It's something I never thought about. And and I learned a lot about it through the BAC forum. And I just wondered if you could talk about it for some of the listeners. I think it's important to hear. Code switching is something that Black people have been doing since the dawn of time. It is something that is unfortunate that we have to do. But oftentimes, the way in which Black people communicate with each other when we are in spaces that are only black we have a means a a shorthand of the way we speak or you know we might not use all of the same terminologies that people are familiar with so once we get into a space that we are the minority um we oftentimes have to switch the way in which we use language, the way in which we communicate solely because the other people in the room may judge us because of the way that we speak or may take offense or think that we're angry or look at the language in a demeaning way, the way we speak. So you have to speak the way in which makes them feel comfortable. And so that's what the code switching is about. And it's something that we all do because when you go to a job interview, you know, they want you to sound a certain way because it seems less confrontational or it's more agreeable to people to hear you speak this way rather than speaking in your natural tone, even. Even just the tone of your voice. It's not even the words. It's literally the sound of your voice sounds threatening to people. They hear the sound of a black man that's threatening. So you might want to lighten up your tone and make it more accessible to those. So that's what code switching is all about. Uh, So eye-opening for me and happy to learn about that. How how do you feel like that affects it affects you when you are working maybe with a team and director that is a black director and and creative team as opposed to a white director and creative team? Maybe it's obvious what you just said, but you don't have to code switch. Or what what feels different to you when you're in those you know two different rooms? Because I know you've been a part of those you know those two different rooms in kind of big ways. Yeah, I really have. I've, I have been lucky in that way to have had a diverse experience in terms of, you know, having all Black casts and being the only Black person in a cast. I've thankfully had both experiences and you learn a lot from both. I think that having a room in which you don't have to code switch just releases so much tension from your experience and it just allows you to be free and allows you to be you, which then allows for the best work to be done because you're not thinking about anything but the work. You're not thinking about how you're coming across to those around you. You're just thinking about how the work comes across, (laughs) not about how I personally am coming across. Am I offending you? Am I making you fearful? 
I'm just being me and we all can create this piece together. So it is a much more productive environment when you don't have to put on something that you are not authentically. Well, totally. I mean, it's it, obviously in any career, <laughs> that's important, but specifically in the theater in a rehearsal room, it's like, how can you do your best work if you're playing a part to then play a part? It's exactly. like you're adding another step that, and how is the best work going to get done? Right. Yeah. This is just occurring to me, but but what can I do or what can a white friend of yours or like say I also direct? So like what can I do as a director or a white ally to, to make you feel, to help you know that you are safe and taken care of and that like I want you to be yourself in this room because I want the best work to be done. If we're doing a scene together, how do I how do I best support and make the room feel safe so that we can do our best work together? Well, I think that white allies have to be unafraid of speaking up when any sort of racial experience happens within the group. So someone has to be comfortable with calling that out and educating those around them that it's not okay because sometimes the person that it's happening to the person of color doesn't feel comfortable addressing it oftentimes we often just keep our mouths shut but if we have someone beside us who can point out the fact that it's wrong that would be so very helpful and then you feel not so alone um so that's the first thing to call out bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Then also I think to ensure, again, if you're in a director role, of course, ensuring that the room is not only occupied by white people, ensure that there is a range of experience in that room so that everyone feels as though they matter in the space. Because if you don't, see others like you, you can tend to feel that you don't really matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is a huge thing. And I think... And you mean like, just to clarify, like stage management, ASMs, like even the people, assistants and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes. In every aspect, backstage, even though I know that directors don't have, that's a whole different union. But yes, in in the ways that it can be controlled, then we would love to see that. And I think that there probably should be some sort of training about racial sensitivity. We have training about sexual harassment that we have to do. Why can there not be training about racism? (laughs) I think that that would be very useful to many people that are very unaware of the things that may be offensive to me that they don't seem to be offensive because of the privilege they have of not knowing. So that would be very eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. So something like that would be great. Yeah, I think what this whole moment for me is about, you know, a month ago, I would have said, I'm not racist. I, I, of course I'll stick up for my friends and, and call things out when I don't, when I, when I see something's wrong, like, oh my gosh, of course I'll do that. But for me, I think the biggest thing that I'm taking away is, I mean, there's so many things I'm taking away, but I'm actually learning that there's so much more racist behavior and microaggressions than I even knew, like stuff that was just flying over my head that I'm like, no, that's that's not okay. I didn't know that before, but it totally makes sense to me why it's not okay. And And going forward, I just feel like I'm better equipped from having this conversation, from listening to other conversations of what is what is not acceptable behavior and 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 the best way to 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 help and be an ally and and to listen and and and, you know, like you said, call out bad behavior when I see it, because I just feel like I'm much more aware of it now. So and before I wasn't completely aware of my of my privilege that I have because of the color of my skin and that I don't have to deal with things. And and something you also said that I really took away from is 
I, I, as an actor, I'm very like vocal in the room as, you know, I'm like, well, I think this, you know, or like, I'm very, um, you know, I've, I'm trying to, I, sometimes I try to sit on that because I, you know, want to respect the room we're in, but I never even take that for granted that I'm sure if my skin color was not what it was, that would be a whole different experience for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of like to ask, this is a question I've started asking the last few guests on the podcast, but it's, it's, it's just so fun to know. But entering this business, when you graduated from Ithaca, what's something you wish you knew about this business that you wish you could go back and, and tell Jonathan, like, this is something I want you to know and, and maybe something that will help other people listening? Well, the thing that I always wish that I had found out earlier was that the best way to succeed in this business is to own every part of yourself. We kind of talked about this earlier, but there was a time in the beginning of my career in which I felt like I needed to fit into a mold of what the industry expected me to be. And those things often were not in alignment with who I really was. So I was trying to become something that really wasn't my authentic self. And sure, I could do it, but it wasn't the ultimate expression of who I am. But once I finally was able to realize that who I am is what makes me the superhero that I am. I was able to do so many things that I never was able to do before. So if people can just really stand in the truth of themselves in every way, then that will open up so many doors for you. Don't try to be what they think, what you think they want you to be. Be who you are and they'll either need that for this project or not and that's okay but you will have brought your best self to every room that you enter Mm. love that it's definitely something that i i also wish i knew and um and you watching you on stage i totally get that you know in choir boy and in the inheritance you know you are so good at because i know you as a person but and also valued for being yourself, you know, bringing so much of yourself to to the parts that you're playing. And that's ultimately what's most interesting is when we can watch someone be a human and and like bring humanity and and it's yeah, because, totally- Thank you, I appreciate that. Because I mean, when it comes down to it, the fact of the matter is there is no other you, period. So, and you cannot be anyone else. So why try to be? Mm-hmm. Because when you are you, that's what makes you special. And that's what makes th- this role that you're playing integral to this show. Because no one else could do what you're doing, literally. If we can embrace that, and it's easier said than done, I know. But once you can, oh, the world is your oyster, baby. Yeah. And you've gotten to do so many new, so much new work as well, or, or plays that have maybe had one other production, but something that was like really new. And, and I think writers now are writing less about type. It's, you know, it's something we've talked about on the podcast is they're not writing for archetypes as much anymore. They're writing idiosyncratic material that will be brought to life by another human, you know, bringing themselves to it. And so I think that's, you know, learning that lesson is definitely something I think why you have the career that you do and why it's so, so exciting to watch you on stage. And I'm um, so exciting, excited to watch you on stage. Once we can be on stage again. (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. You know, and speaking of just like writers and writing, another thing I, that I just want to bring up is that I feel like we've got to get more representation from black and POC writers on the stage because those stories are so interesting and so multifaceted, just like you're talking about idiosyncratic experiences 
and universal experiences they're, that are not being told. And it's so important. And those people are often then writing for people of color as well. I mean, if a, a writer of color often writes for actors of color. So then you would, that would give the opportunities to actors of color to be seen. I mean, I just like the last play, I just want to give this fact because this is just fascinating to me. I've, I've been like looking up things online just during this time about the black experience on Broadway specifically. The last best play that was a cast of all black people that was written by a black person was Fences in 1987. That's a lifetime ago. That's older than, I won't say my age, but <laughs> than many people that Same. I know. Okay, so the fact that there has not been another winner of best play by a black writer is insane. It's, I mean, thankfully I was in Choir Boy, which was like one of the few plays that has even been nominated for best play that's written by a black person. It, it's just not okay. Mm -hmm. And and I think that starts with really the opportunity of, it really goes back to like education of writers and education in the arts, because I think that just writers of color aren't given those opportunities in institutions and then also in on-the-job learning, because I think that oftentimes white writers get a chance to write a piece and it may not be that great, get bad reviews, but then they get another chance to do another piece. If a black writer writes something, if it's not a hit, they're done with them. They don't get the chance to fall and learn through experience. And that's so important in the arts because you can't grow without that. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be willing to give these people these opportunities. I absolutely Totally agree. And that's, I mean, that's shocking about fences. And I, I, I feel like. I couldn't believe it. 1987. I couldn't believe I mean, it's crazy. Speaking about black writers or POC writers, are there some writers or directors out there that you're like, oh my gosh, I would love to either work with them again or work with them because I saw this and they're telling stories and telling stories in a way that I want to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, George C. Wolf has always been like the tops for me. For sure. So he's a person that I absolutely want to work with. There's such a long list. Uh, Susan Laurie Parks, Ruben Santiago Hudson, Belisha Rashad, mm -hmm. um, writers. There are so many young writers that I'm excited about that a lot of them are friends of mine that are just genius. Jeremy O'Harris and mm -hmm. Donye Love and Lee Edward Colston III, Jeray Breon Holder. I mean, there's so there's so many people that I really want to work with. And then like in TV and film, of course, Ava DuVernay and Issa Rae. I mean, they're... There's great work being done, and I just hope that I get to play with these people. Of course, my Terrell McCraney, who I love, my friend, I will work with him to the end of time again and again. I hope that that happens with these folks. Well, Y'all out there, call me. Katori Hall, <laughs> call me. <laughs> totally. And I have no doubt that a lot of those people will be calling you because you're insanely talented and such a good person and I'm so honored and so grateful that we were able to sit down and have this conversation. I feel like I could keep having this conversation for another three hours. We really just scratched the surface, but for me as a white person, scratching the surface was really it. I mean, that was the thing that was like, okay, I'm listening the things that I knew to be true in my own life leading up to the last couple of weeks are not true. And once I saw like the crack in the mirror or scratched the surface, I was kind of able to do my own work and read and listen. And uh, I love that we just talked about black writers because I'm going to go look all of them up. I mean, a lot of them I do know, but like, I, and like look at more of their stuff. And because I know we're going to be seeing more from them and I'm going to be seeing you doing a lot of their stuff. Yeah. Um, I want to see you on stage, but I'm like, please, you're going to be in on television in like five seconds once people hey. can 
<laughs> Once we can be on television. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, Jonathan, this has been so wonderful. I so appreciate chatting with you and I can't wait to know you for, for so long and get to see everything you do. And I think people will be really excited to hear this and all Jonathan's like social channels. I'll like post in the show notes so you can follow his journey and his story. And thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been such a pleasure and I'm, uh, so blessed to know you and to have this conversation. Thank you so much, ditto. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Hi,